Hey, New Life Downtown, thank you so much for joining us online tonight. I hope and pray that you are staying safe and warm. I miss being able to see you in person tonight, but so grateful that we have the technology to come into your home, into your apartment, to your living room. Hope you're gathered together with family and friends uh, to join us tonight in worshiping the Lord, coming to his table and hearing from the scriptures. Tonight is our 11th week in our series entitled The Last Word through the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. After this, we actually only have three weeks left in this sermon series. I'll get a chance to do one of them. Glenn will be doing two of them. In between, we'll have a chance to hear from Rich Velotis. But first, before we get to all of that, it's the sermon that you've all been waiting for. The sermon whose title is The Last Word on Judgment. I don't hear the applause from everyone saying, yes, we've been waiting for this. Perhaps this actually makes a better title for a movie than it does for a sermon. People line up for movies about judgment, but for sermons about judgment, we were immediately going, maybe we should not have tuned in tonight. But hopefully this sermon will be helpful for you. The idea of judgment actually comes up in Revelation for the first time in Revelation chapter 6 verse 10. As we see the seventh seal being opened, we get this picture of martyrs, those who have been executed for their faith in Jesus under the altar and they're crying out. And this is what they're saying. They cried out with a loud voice, holy and true Master, how long, how long will you wait before you pass judgment? How long before you require justice for our blood, which is shed by those who live on the earth? How long, how long? This question is really one of the core questions. It's really one of the core cries of humanity. We know as people that things are not as they should be. We know that things are not right in the world. We know that things are not the way that we want them to be. And if we were just take a moment right now, all of us would come up with a list of things that are wrong. Things maybe in our own life where we would look at this and say, this isn't fair, this isn't just, this isn't how it should be. Or we can look at things in our country or things in the world or things throughout history and we can make this long list and say this is not right there's something about us as humanity that we know that things are not the way they should be and this question how long really captures our collective longing for justice that we want things to be different that we want things to be changed that we want things to be right and some of us we search for that justice in silence and for others, we march on the streets. And for others, we find ourselves sort of caught between what do we do and how do we move forward and what, what, what do we do about the things that we find in the world? See, we all want justice. But the truth is, is we can't agree on what it is. And we certainly can't agree on how to achieve it. There's something about us that agrees that there is some line that separates good and evil and right and wrong and truth and falsehood. We know that there's some line that is out there that distinguishes between what is human and what is inhuman or inhumane. 
And we, we know that that is there. We believe that there's a standard that, that inside of that standard or above that standard results in human flourishing. And outside of that standard or below that standard, what we find is the destruction of humanity. And so we all pass judgment. We all sort of can say, well, this is that and this is this. We, we're all passing judgment all the time. But the truth is we all don't pass the same judgment. That we all can't agree on exactly what those things are. And in addition to that, every attempt that we have made throughout human history to enact justice in the world has failed it has failed every single time. Every attempt has been really unable to eradicate evil, and it's been unable to fully account for human sin and our own participation in the things in the world that are broken. If we're being honest, we can't even do this in our own homes. I cannot tell you the number of times during the course of the week that I hear my girls crying out, but that's not fair. But even in all of our best attempts as parents to try to create some sort of equity, some sort of justice, some sort of fairness in our own homes, our kids are crying out, how long, how long is it going to be this way? And the scriptures teach us that this is not just simply a human endeavor of trying to figure out how to bring justice in the world. But the scriptures teach us that we need divine intervention. They teach us not just to say how long, but to say how long, Lord. Not just to cry out, not just to ask a question, but to pray. How long, Lord? How long, Lord? But if we're really, really, really honest with one another, we want divine justice. We want God to come and make things right in the world, but we don't want divine judgment. That divine judgment, if we're really honest, disturbs us. That as it's depicted in the scriptures or, our, or how it's interpreted by many people, it disturbs us. That we're not sure what to do with it. It makes us uncomfortable, kind of causes us to wiggle a bit in our chairs. If we're really honest, it's a source of doubt for many of us. And it's a stumbling block for many people who are outside of faith that when you think about divine judgment, think about pictures like Sodom and Gomorrah, or Pharaoh and the plagues, or Joshua and Judges, or the book of Revelation, there's something about it that makes us uncomfortable. Well, tonight I'm hoping that as we look at Revelation 15 and 16, we can give you some handles for how to think about divine judgment and divine justice in the scriptures. In Revelation 15 and 16, we find the final set of seven judgments. We had the seven seals and then the seven trumpets, and now we get the seven bowls. And Revelation, as we've said over and over again, relies on symbolic images and approximate language. John is drawing from this massive pool of Jewish and Greek Greco-Roman texts and images and events to try to and capture what it is that he is trying to say. And he employs this abundance of metaphors. He's using uh, um, like approximate and symbolic language throughout. And we see that happening again here. Revelation chapter 15 verse 1 begins this way. It says, Then I saw another great and awe-inspiring sign in heaven. And there were seven angels with seven plagues that will later be called the seven and these are the last, for with them God's anger is brought to an end. And then I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mixed with fire, 
and those who gained victory over the beast and its image and the, the, and the number of its name, they were standing on the glass sea and they were holding harps from God. Revelation 15 describes God as angry. This is God's anger or in some texts, God's wrath. And that language itself is even troublesome for us because when we think about wrath, that seems incompatible with love. Now, how can God be a God of love and God be a God of wrath? Because when we think about wrath, the pictures that we think of are something that's arbitrary or it's punitive or it's vindictive, it's revengeful in some way. But when we think about love, we think about love as being accepting or permissive or tolerant. And so these things seemingly can't be reconciled. They seem to not belong together. They're like orange juice and toothpaste or socks and sandals. Like there's just no reason for that. These things don't belong together. But what we see in the scriptures is that God's wrath is actually an expression of his love. God's wrath is an expression of his love. See, God made us. He made us in his image and his likeness. He designed us. He knows who we are. He knows how we are. And he knows what we need. He knows what human flourishing looks like. He loves us. And he longs, us, longs for us to live and to live well, and to live with each other, and to live with him. And out of that love, and out of that knowledge, he actually stands against anything that stands against what is best for us. He is in opposition to what actually opposes human flourishing. This is what love does, is it stands against those things. One of my professors, Robert Mulholland, said it this way. He said, it could be said that the wrath of God is the love of God that moves us stringently, rigorously, unrelentingly against anything in our being or in the world that is inconsistent with God's will for our wholeness in his image. He's moving against anything that is actually coming against the image of God in us and what he knows, what, it, what he knows to be true about humanity, what it means for us to flourish. And we actually all can picture this a little bit if we think about parents and their kids. If you've ever seen anybody coming against the child of a parent who's present, and all of a sudden mama bear or papa bear comes out to their defense to come against, to stand in, to protect, to defend, to come against that thing that's coming against them, or even in those moments where a toddler starts to wander toward the street and the parent screams and comes running and grabs the child and saves them from that oncoming car, and the child's crying and scared because they see the, the wrath of the parent coming against the potential danger, and they think maybe that they've done something wrong. Maybe it's something personal. Sometimes I think the same thing happens to us with God, that God's love is coming after us, coming to save us, coming to rescue us, coming to help us, and it's coming to save us from something that's actually destructive for us, and we're not sure what to do with love expressed that way. Revelation 15 goes on. It says, they sing the song of Moses with their harps. God's servants, and they sing the song of the Lamb, singing, great and awesome and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, King of the nation. Who won't fear you, Lord, and who won't glorify your name? You alone are holy, 
and all nations will come and fall down and worship before you for your acts of justice have been revealed. See, the scriptures present to us a God who has the right to judge and who judges rightly. The scriptures claim that God alone has the right to judge and that God alone judges rightly. He's described in this passage as the Lord God Almighty, the King of the nations. It's a way of saying that God actually has the authority to determine where that line is, that he has the authority to determine the standard, and he has the authority and the ability to enact justice, that he's the one that can judge and enact justice. And it goes on and it describes him as just, as true, as holy, that he's actually the one who's not only able He's not only the one who has the authority to do this, but he's actually the one who's worthy to do this as well. That his judgments are trustworthy. They can be trusted because of who he is and what he is like. His character is such that he is the one that is worthy to judge. As the passage continues, we see then these four living creatures that, are, that represent the entire created order. And they give seven angels seven bowls. And these bowls are then poured out on the earth over the next chapter or so. In Revelation, the earth is symbolic for the rebellious realm, the realm that set itself against God and doesn't, refuses to acknowledge God as God and to honor God as God. So it's the judgment's being poured out on the powers and the participants in fallen Babylon. And what we see in this passage and elsewhere is that God's judgment, though, as it's being poured out, the hope and the focus and the goal of his judgment is redemption. God's judgment is redemptive, but it's not coercive. It's redemptive, but it's not coercive. Maybe the, one of the clearest pictures we get of this actually is in John chapter 3. Right after that famous passage about God loving the world, we read this, John 3, 17. It says, God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He's wanting to rescue. He's wanting to redeem. He's wanting to save. And whoever believes in him isn't judged. Whoever doesn't believe in him, though, is already judged because they didn't believe in the name of God's only son. See, and then he says, this is the basis for judgment, that the light came into the world. But people love darkness more than light for their actions are evil. See, John 3, again, says Jesus came into the world to save the world, not to condemn it. But in order to save the world, Jesus must judge the world. In order to make the world right, in order to bring about justice, Jesus must judge the world. He must name, condemn, defeat, and eradicate all evil. He has to pull the weeds from the garden. He has to remove the decayed tooth. He has to treat the cancer. He has to extract the poison. He has to clean up the toxic waste of sin and evil and injustice that's in the world. But some, we find in this passage, are condemned. But they're not condemned arbitrarily or punitively or vindictively by God, but they're judged willingly by themselves. It says that they loved the darkness more than the light. So their life has resulted in weeds and decay and cancer and poison and toxins. And they've decided this is actually 
how they want life to be, that this is the life that they prefer. See, in Revelation 16, judgment is poured out against the evil powers and the evil participants. They're experiencing the natural results of life lived against the grain of God's goodness. But God wants them to change their ways. God wants them to repent. God wants to redeem them. We see this in Revelation 16, 8. It says, but they didn't change their hearts and lives and they didn't give them glory. The judgment is happening to them. They're experiencing all of the sort of disintegration that's happening because of sin and because of evil. They're like, no, 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 I don't want to change. Verse 11 says the same thing. They cursed God and said, because of the pains and the sores, but they didn't turn away from what they had done. See, rather than realizing their own complicity in what's happening, they curse God instead. Rather than repenting, they start pointing fingers and blaming God and blaming others. Rather than wanting life with God, they want life without God. They want life without God more than they want life with Him. They want life without love, without goodness, without beauty, without truth. And here in Revelation, it's like God's staging an intervention. He's saying, I want you. I want you to be a part of my family and my kingdom. Come, turn away, repent, come back into the kingdom. He's staging an intervention and offering all of the help of heaven to set humanity free. And instead, we see people saying, no thanks. I'd like to keep living the way that I'm living. See, we see in the scriptures is that God will give us what we desire most, even if it's not what he desires for us. God will give us what we desire most, even if it's not what he desires for us. The passage, of course, doesn't end there. It goes on and we see as this passage comes to a close that God's wrath will end. All the way back at the beginning, it says, then I saw another great and inspiring sign in heaven. And there were seven angels with seven plagues. And these are the last for with them, God's anger is brought to an end. And then as the chapter unfolds, we see we get to the sixth seal and with the, the or sorry, the, the sixth bowl. And with the sixth bowl, we see these unclean spirits kind of coming up out of what's called the, the unholy trinity, the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. And all of these unholy spirits and these demonic spirits and the beast and the dragon and the false prophet, all of the powers of evil are gathering together. And it says this in Revelation 16, 14, these are the demonic spirits that do signs and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of the Lord God Almighty. And it says, then the spirits gathered them at the place that in Hebrew is called Harmageddon. And then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out from the temple and from the throne saying, it is done. Here we find that really famous battle of Armageddon. It comes in just a handful of verses here in Revelation 16, but it's made for endless theories uh, from all sorts of people about what this is. The it's actually a transliteration, the word, of a Hebrew phrase. The Hebrew phrase is Har Megiddo, which means Mount of Megiddo. But the interesting thing is that there is no Mount Megiddo in Israel. There is no mountain named Megiddo in Israel. This is a sign for us that this is actually a symbolic place, a symbolic thing that's being talked about. Megiddo is actually a valley city. It sits in the Jezreel Valley, 
And it's the site of all these decisive victories or these decisive battles in Israel's history. The closest mountain is actually Mount Carmel or Mount Carmel, where Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal. So we have this symbolic place of what we're expecting in Revelation is we're expecting this epic battle, this battle of good versus evil. And we think about all the novels and all the movies that have been made by, uh, about this, and they set it up as World War III and tell everyone you should stockpile your water and your canned goods and build a shelter in your basement. But what's really fascinating in Revelation is that there is no war. There's no bloody battle. See, what we have happened here is this unholy trinity and all the evil spirits, they gather together for battle and they believe they've got a shot. They're playing their pregame music. They've got jack jams going and they're, they're getting all rallied up. They're ready for the fight. They're clapping and they're stomping. But what happens is that even before the game, the game begins, it's over. Because what happens is that a seventh angel pours out a bowl, and it's done. There's no battle. It's an angel pouring out a bowl, and then God saying, it's done. It's the same phrase, it's finished, that he uses in creation. It's the same phrase that Jesus utters on the cross. And here, it is finished. It's done. See, when God decides, Jesus will return, and evil will be gone, and wrath will end. See, God is not like the Avengers gathered together trying to figure out that one scenario in 16 million where they might possibly defeat Thanos if everything goes right. See, no, in the scriptures, there is no scenario that Thanos wins. There's no scenario that evil and injustice and the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, there's no scenario they win. And even when they think they've got a shot and they gather for battle, it's over by an angel pouring out a bowl. Evil cannot stand in the presence of God's goodness and his holiness and his grace and his love. So where does that leave us from here? There's a lot more that we could say about judgment. There's a lot more passages to read. There's a lot more questions that we could ask. And even if we had all of the time, we honestly won't be able to wrap everything up in a nice little bow. But here's what the scriptures present us with. They present us with a God who is love and a God who loves us. They present us with a God who can and must judge his creation in order to save it. They present us with a God who judges rightly, fairly, justly. They present us with a God whose character is just and can actually do this. They present us with a God who judges in order to redeem all things, in order to restore justice, in order to make things good again. And so the scriptures then ask us the question, do you trust him? Do you trust God to judge? Do you trust God to establish justice? Do you trust him to do this for you? Do you trust him to do it for the people that are sitting next to you? For the people that you love, the people that you care about, for your friends and for your family? Do you trust him to do this for you with the people who've hurt you? And do you trust him to do it for the people that you've hurt? Do you trust him? And more specifically, do you trust the God who's been revealed in Jesus? That that's the God that we're called to trust. 
Because if we want to know what God is like, if we want to know what God looks like, if we want to know what God's judgment and justice look like, then we look no further than the cross and the resurrection. If we want to know what judgment looks like, it's God coming to earth and dying on a cross for us. And if we want to know what justice looks like, it's God defeating all evil and walking out of that grave, ascending into heaven and coming back again to bring resurrection life to us all. Let's pray as we get ready to come to the table. Father, we thank you that you are the one who judges rightly and who has the right to judge. And we are grateful that when we want to know what your, judge, your judgment and your justice look like, that you give us a picture. And that picture is Jesus. And that you've given us a reminder of what that looks like here at the table. And so we ask as we come that you would help us to trust you, to be the one to judge and to bring justice into the world. In Jesus' name we pray.